Let us pray. God of love, we thank you for being in your presence this morning, and we ask that you fill us with your spirit so that we all may be a light to each other, to our nation, and to all nations. In your name, amen. So it is Martin Luther King Jr. Sunday, and we'll be talking about him a little bit, but there is a little piece, or this whole scripture, I feel, not only speaks about the prophets of old, including Isaiah, or to Jesus, the Messiah, the Christian Messiah of 2,000 years ago, but continues to speak for those who represent to us a light to the nations, and that includes Martin Luther King Jr. and all those who worked for the civil rights movement. And each year, at this time of year, I learn something new about Martin Luther King. And one of the things that new things I learned this last week was that he was a source of inspiration for the civil, the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland as well. So even in the counties, the six counties of Northern Ireland, where my mum is from, Martin Luther King Jr. had a huge impact there. He received his Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, and later in 1998, when John Hume, who was a politician in Northern Ireland, received his Nobel Peace Prize, he referenced Martin Luther King as an inspiration, someone who inspired the leaders of Northern Ireland to engage in peace talks and to uh, work for the rights of the um, what we call the Catholic natives, uh, because they were seen as um, the lower class and the Protestant British plants of 500 years ago, which now would be considered native too, uh, were the upper class. And so there was this, this dual class system in Northern Ireland. And the civil rights movement was around helping uh, the, the Irish who identified as Catholic and as Irish Republicans uh, to gain access to the same rights and liberties as the Protestant English community. And it was a long struggle. But um, John Hume was a voice for peace uh, during that movement. And it was because of his talks with Jerry Adams in the 1990s that the peace agreement was brokered. And so without John, uh, that would probably not have been possible at the time. And because of that work, Hume not only received the Nobel Peace Prize, but he offered receive, also received the Nonviolent Peace Prize, the Martin Luther King Jr. Nonviolent Peace Prize. And I had no idea this prize existed, but he received it in 1999, the year after he received the Nobel Peace Prize. And Ada King presented it to Hume. And um, Hume said at that time, like Dr. King, um, oh, sorry, I'm going back. Hume said he believed in the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, because we believed in inclusivity, not exclusivity. We believe that true unity among all Irish people was unity of the heart, not unity of the soil. So unity of the heart. I find them very, those words really profound. And so one of the things that struck me then when I learned this was that Martin Luther King was not only, his legacy is not only here in the U.S., but is indeed a global legacy. He had impacts in Africa, uh, speaking out against apartheid, in Asia, in obviously Ireland, in East and uh, Western Europe. He gave this wonderful speech in Berlin, um, Berlin Wall existed, that brought people to tears, brought the German people to tears. 
as he talked about how these barriers were setting up divisions between people and how overcoming those divisions was part of the work of humanity at that time, just as it continues to be our work now. And so as someone still learning about American history, I, I, this is the first time that I myself have come to realize the global impact of Martin Luther King's work, not just his impact here in the United States. And then one of the things that I learned too was that during Martin Luther King Jr.'s own life, only 28% of the white Americans had a favorable opinion of him. Only 28% during his lifetime as opposed to about 80% of African Americans. And that was in 1966 that poll was taken, two years after Martin Luther King's international um, impact had been recognized through the reception of the Nobel Peace Prize. And then this leads leads back to our scripture thousands of years ago, but also to the present and future. Because our scripture points to how lights to the nations emerge and are called and and formed in their mother's wombs. They are formed arrows and hidden in quivers for a while, but then emerge to to bring a kind of salvation. And how I understand Martin Luther King's, one of the ways I understand it, one possible way to understand it, is that he too, as Jesus did, represents a salvific moment. And when we talk about salvation in our current context, we can understand salvation as, oper- as offering those moments of what we call atonement or metanoia. And uh, you may know that in the Greek, metanoia means turning point or turning around, going in a different direction. And that is what Martin Luther King offered our nation, but also inspiration to other nations, opportunities for turning around. And for the white community during Martin Luther King's time, this was a time, it was a salvific moment for us a point at which we as white individuals were, asset, were asked and invited to reflect on the racism that had you know, formed our society, formed us, oppressed a whole people, and to truly, truly turn around the social structures that continued, perpetuated that oppression, but also the internal attitudes that contributed to that oppression too. And so as a society... That salvific moment, that opportunity for atonement was real and alive. And it was obviously very hard for people to live into. If, he, if only 30% of the white people at, during the life of Martin Luther King were really seeing that, that is, a, to me, emblematic of the necessity of that work, of someone calling us to hold ourselves accountable harm that we are doing in the world. And this message is still so powerful that one of the reasons that it is powerful is that it is not ended. It is still ongoing, not only, especially in today's context, the society that we are living in now, sort of the reemergence of white nationalism, of oppression, of poor people, people with disabilities, people with mental health issues, the houselessness are exploding. The underclass, however we understand that, are again being pushed to the margins. And so what Martin Luther King invited us to reflect on 50 years ago 
and the people he invited us to become then, that invitation is still so alive and so present in this moment. Who are we called to be in this moment? How can we be the light nations that he invited everyone to? I was reflecting this last week on his life and legacy was, where did he go from here? And it's one of his lesser-known speeches, and he offered it um, to the SCLC convention in 1967 in August. And his, this speech is on the Stanford webpage. They have all his speeches. There's a whole institute developed, uh, devoted to his work. But it, uh, the, the, so 1967, uh, Civil Rights Act and the Voting Act have been passed already. And, the, and it's such a beautiful question. Where do we go from here? And the whole, like all his writing, is so exquisite and so profound and so, you know, intellectual on the one hand and let accessible to everyone on the other. So I, I always um, usually find myself in tears at some point just reading the speeches. But during the speech, he's like, okay, so here's what we've done what we've accomplished. It's not over. Here's where the work is continuing. Here's what we're doing. He points out, I wasn't here or alive during this time, but he spoke about Operation Breadbasket. And some of you might be familiar with it. But it was this movement uh, that brought black churches together, uh, both lay and clergy, particularly in Chicago and in Cleveland, but in Atlanta and some other cities. And it was a to help bring job and capital flow and income and higher quality of life. For example, in Chicago, this group able to get um, a, a corporation, I think it was called Hilo in Chicago, and th- they got that uh, corporation to invest in some African-American banks that could, so that there was then enough capital to, to invest in African-American business. And it had an impact. It brought, at that time, $5 million into the African-American community in Chicago through jobs, through access to funds. had a huge impact. And then what they did was there was a group of 70 ministers and 70 churches that met with Test, which was another big corporation, a dairy corporation. And um, they, you know, at that time still had of discrimination, and they agreed to hire uh, more African-Americans. They, too, started to invest in um, the African-American community and economically. And so that, too, that was a smaller scale, but it was $5,000 Luther King recorded. And so this work, this little, these pieces of the movement that became very specific, that changed the lives of people in their community, were, in this case, corporations in particular were invited to reflect on their practices, how economics and morality, society, the choices they make are connected. And we get to continue to reflect on that. And part of the legacy that I see unfolding is that even here in Silicon Valley, there is a uh, group that is currently forming and it started forming about five years ago, so long before I came. But I heard about them just last 
January or March. And it is the Silicon Valley Answering Committee that picks up this sort of interfaith movement, both faith and secular movement, of community organizing so that people of faith, people of no faith, corporations, nonprofits, government representatives start this dialogue where people come together and have conversations, get to know each other, identify the needs in the communities, identify what things can be done to help make people's lives better. And for everyone involved in this process, there are these opportunities for metanoia, those turning points for creating the beloved community that, that Martin Luther King so powerfully and continues to invite us into today. And this group, at um, I'm starting in the wrong place. I'm a better here, yeah? Lovely. Plant my feet. Cool. Um, the, uh, this, I've watched, even over this last year, uh, in multiple faith groups, reaching out to all kinds of secular, prophet, not community, are really taking the legacy of forming a beloved community to help change, literally, so that salvation becomes not just something in the netless, something in the afterlife. It happens right now, this moment, just as it did in the rights movement. All around us, it's all the time about knowing percent in ourselves that we are beloved. We are all beloved children of God. Out of that certainty, we can act so that all people are recognized and truly seen as beloved people of God. And from there, begin to truly build that beloved community. Because if we are all truly beloved... We are all truly entitled to the same rights and dignity and access to the things that make our lives well and whole at a minimum. And, and part of our theologic, part of God's call then, as this scripture represents, is calling each of us into that. Just Martin Luther King reminded us his life embodied. We are all called to be part of work however we can. And my hope and prayer is that as we together grow in our faith and develop and grow as a community, that we will find ways of living mother's wombs to be, to know we are beloved, and to act in the world so that other, all people know that they too are beloved in that way. And in that, on that note, uh, as we uh, acknowledge the children of us, we uh, in Amen. <laughs>